Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Well, everyone loves a good origin story, don't we? Uh, let me just give you a couple quick examples and see if you can identify them. Uh, in West Philadelphia, born and raised on a playground is where he spent most of his days. Wouldn't know who that was. It's the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Uh, how about this one? After tragically losing his parents at birth, he was confined to a closet uh, under a staircase for the first 11 years of life until he discovered he was actually the most powerful wizard in the world. Of course, that's Harry Potter, of course. And last one, uh, this, this poor young man also uh, lost, but actually watched both his parents get murdered uh, right before his eyes. So he swore vengeance against criminals, personally restored justice to his hometown of Gotham. That is Batman, see? We're keeping him engaged, good. So, but let that be a warning. Look out, parents. All the best origin stories start with us dying. Uh, and our protagonist for this morning is also going to be stripped of his parents at infancy. His origin story, too, is one of inauspicious beginnings, born to slaves, given away when he was only three months old, raised by the enemy to become a murderer, forced to flee the only home he had ever known as a fugitive living in exile. This is not the backstory you might expect of the second most important person in all the Bible, indeed all of history, a man named Moses. And yet God would use Moses' troubled past in the way that only God can to make Moses into one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known. Vince Lombardi said, leaders aren't born, they're made. And this week in Exodus 2, God will make Moses into the kind of leader that he had to become in order to pull off God's greatest act of redemption yet in the biblical story of the Exodus. But the reason that God gave Moses such a rough backstory was to prove that it was not going to be through Moses' greatness and strength that the salvation of his people would be accomplished, but rather it would be through God's greatness, God's strength. Because God gets glory when he proves that he can use extremely ordinary people to pull off the extraordinary. Only God could take an adopted, pampered, spoiled, murderous, rejected, fugitive, turned shepherd, outcast, and use him to accomplish the salvation of his people, of two to three million people. Only God can do that. And as we said last week, the Exodus story isn't just their story, Moses' story, Israel's story. It's our story as well. All of us who are God's people today who have been free to follow him. If you are in Christ, this is your story. And so we're going to read ourselves into Moses' story this morning. And most importantly, remember, it's Jesus' story. Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. So we have to read Jesus into every part of this morning. So in light of that, I want to do three things as we look at Exodus 2 together. I want to identify the necessary traits of a great leader that we discover here in God molding Moses into this great leader. Uh, but secondly, we do so so that we can personally apply them in our own lives as well. Just as God called Moses to lead his people out of slavery into freedom, if you were here for us last year as we studied our way through the book of Acts, you know that God has similarly called you and me 
those of us in Christ to help lead people out of slavery into freedom as well, out of the spiritual enslavement of sin and into the freedom that is new life in Christ. That's our calling. Every Christian here, every Christian who's been set free has now been given the privilege and the responsibility to serve as an ambassador of Christ at his leadership. To lead is to influence others, and specifically we've been called to influence them for Christ. And so God wants to use you and me, and he wants to use his preparation of Moses here to further prepare you and me for the redemptive work that he's calling us to this week in the world as gospel witnesses. But thirdly, in closing, we're going to read Jesus into the story as well. The greatest leader of all time, the better Moses who alone is worthy of our devotion. All of these leadership principles are going to find their utmost fulfillment in Christ. And so I invite you uh, to stand with me as you're able. I'll warn you, this is going to be a long couple uh, passages. We're going to start in Exodus 2, verses 1 through 22, but then there's two passages in the New Testament that shed a lot of light on Moses' backstory that we need to look at in uh, Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. So, Hear with me the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call For you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. And he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them, and he watered their flock. When they came home to their father Reuel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. 
he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And now we turn to Acts chapter 7, verses 20 through 29. This is Stephen's testimony uh, as he's about to be beaten by these first century Jewish persecutors for sharing the gospel, but he seeks to show them how all of the Old Testament anticipates Jesus as their coming Messiah, the word of the Lord. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And finally, we turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 23 through 26. This is uh, from the chapter Hebrews 11, nicknamed the Hall of Faith. Moses, of course, would be on the Mount Rushmore of faith if there was a top four. But here, once more, the word of the Lord. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Would you use it now? to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts that we might see and hear, receive wondrous things from your word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, even in the Old Testament of Exodus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Twelve things that leaders need. We discover here, number one, leaders need both God's favor and others' help. God's favor and others' help. Moses had both. All three of the texts that we just read hinted at the fact that there was something special about Moses, even from his birth. His, Moses saw, his mother saw that he was a fine child. He was beautiful. Then Stephen says that Moses was also beautiful in God's sight. And the Hebrew word used back in Exodus can mean beautiful, fine, physically attractive, but it can also be translated more broadly and generally as good. It's the word 
Tov, the same word God used at the end of every day of creation in Genesis 1 as he looked around and God saw that it was good. So at Moses' birth, God saw that he was good, that Moses was special. And God said his blessing on Moses from day one, he would use him to accomplish great things. Now, part of that blessing meant that God had to protect Moses. Before God could use Moses to save his people, God had to save Moses. And God orchestrated some plan to do it. And I want us to focus here in the first 10 verses anyway on just how much help Moses had to receive along the way from others. There's really no such thing as a self-made man. There's no such thing as a self-made leader. We all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, those who invested in us to make us the people we are today. That was true of Moses. Consider all the sacrifices made for Moses in this one chapter alone. He's going to receive help in future chapters from his wife Zipporah, from his older brother Aaron will read about later, his father-in-law again in Exodus 18, where Moses learns the vital leadership skill of delegation. But just consider all the help he receives here in the first 10 verses from his biological parents, his adoptive mother, even his older sister, who we'll learn later is named Miriam. Uh, we're going to start with his parents. They're anonymous here. We learn in uh, chapter 6 of Exodus, their names are Jochebed was his mother and Amram was his father. So Hebrews 11 includes them in the hall of faith as well because they risked their lives to save baby Moses. By defying Pharaoh's order, his edict from chapter 1 and last week, to throw every Hebrew baby boy in the Nile River, you remember. But by faith... Moses was hidden for three months by his parents, we read. Just like the Hebrew midwives last week, Moses' parents feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. But as much faith as that took to defy Pharaoh, it must have taken a thousand times more faith yet to then give their beautiful baby up and to trust God to continue to be the one to protect Moses, even when they no longer could. Just imagine, as a parent, any parent in the room this morning can imagine the heartbreak, and yet the faith that it must have taken in verse 3 for Jochebed to walk away from her crying baby there at the river's edge. And there are so many fascinating details to this story that we just don't have time to get into depth on. The irony of Jochebed's casting her son in the Nile. Pharaoh didn't specify. You couldn't use a basket. So he kind of obeys the order. The significance of the basket, the Hebrew word here, teba, is used only one other time in, in one other story in the Old Testament. It's Noah's Ark. That's what the word means. She made an ark for baby Moses. Consider that powerful symbolism. God has already used an ark once to preserve a savior for his people. Now he does it again. And please notice, uh, Moses did not take a, a, a harrowing journey all the way down the Nile River, surviving crocodile and hippo attacks. Um, I love the Prince of Egypt as much as any other child of the 90s, but uh, that is simply one detail that they got wrong. Verse 3 says, Moses' mother placed the basket among the reeds by the riverbank. Verse 5 says, Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket among the reeds. Um, I think that says something about Jochebed's mothering, that she didn't just you know, push him out into the Nile. But you consider also, consider even, even further with me, 
the importance. Consider the faith that it took her to not only give her son up, but she brought him all the way to the edge of Pharaoh's palace. That's where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, in the, the, the temple palace complex. So she brought him up to the steps, basically the, the, the dock by the river of the Pharaoh's palace. If she had been spotted carrying this illegal child, both of them would have been killed. And then she leaves her daughter Miriam there too, risk her life to watch out for Moses. She could have been killed. And while we're at it, let's talk about Miriam's faith to openly suggest to Pharaoh's daughter that she should defy her father's order and rescue this child and have him nursed by one of the Hebrews. And amazingly, she agrees. She takes pity. And so Jochebed not only gets to enjoy another couple years of raising baby Moses until she weans him, but now she gets paid to do it. This is how our God works, redemption. But again, consider the faith that took Pharaoh's daughter, or at least the compassion we're told. In verse 6, she took pity on Moses. Think of the courage to disobey her father, the most powerful man in the world at that time. Imagine that dinner conversation later that night back at the palace. So dad, you know your whole edict about killing all the baby Hebrew boys? Well, funny story. I'm guessing she probably waited until Moses was returned to her as a toddler to break the news to him. But judging from uh, verse 15, where Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, Pharaoh seems to have never really warmed up to the idea of having this adopted Hebrew grandson. Think about the significance of Moses' name in verse 10. We just finished our Advent series on Jesus' names. Moses' name here comes from the Hebrew masha, which means to draw out or to deliver. As a baby, Moses had to be drawn out of the water. But 80 years later, God would use Moses, true to his name, to draw his people out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and deliver them. There's so much here, so much I wish we had time for. But let's just return to the main point of these first 10 verses, this humble recognition that before any one of us can lead others, can care for others, we have to first, every one of us first needs to be led, to, to be cared for by others. We needed God's favor and others' help. The only reason you and I can be ambassadors for Christ today is because we received God's favor and others' help. That God, in his mercy and his love, not because of anything good in you or me, but because of everything good in him, God's goodness toward us, God chose us for adoption, to belong to him before the foundation of the world and set his favor and his blessing on you. And then he surrounded you with others to help bring that to fruition, to protect you, to, to show you compassion, to love you selflessly, and most of all, to witness to you and share God's love for you in Christ. And so I just use that as a, a simple reminder, important exhortation. Call your parents today. Thank them for protecting guiding you. Call your spiritual parents, those who shared Christ with you and brought you to faith. Thank them, but most of all, thank God today. Thank God for what he has done for you in Christ. Number two, leaders need both training and skill. 
Acts 7 tells us here, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, that he was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses received training, instruction, which resulted in his being skilled, mighty. A leader needs both. A leader needs capacity and competency. Leaders need to be both teachable and talented. Why is LeBron James the greatest basketball player on the planet today? Not ever, Michael Jordan, but today, right? It's because, is it because he spent thousands of hours in the gym training, or was it because he was blessed with freakish natural athleticism and talent? The answer, of course, is both. You know, I could have spent twice as much time in the gym as LeBron, and I wouldn't be LeBron because I'm not 6'9 with a 44-inch vertical. On the other hand, there are guys out there that can out-jump and out-bench LeBron who never made it to the league because they weren't coachable. They didn't put in the work. And so according to Acts 7, Moses was both, and we need to be both, teachable and talented, capable and competent. And God would later use the training that he received and the skills he developed at the hands of his enemies, by the way, the Egyptians, God would use that training and skills to free his people from the Egyptians. Again, this is how God works. What about us? <clears throat> Think about implications for our leading for Christ. Some of you are more naturally gifted or spiritually gifted, I should say, at something like evangelism. You find it easy to engage others in conversations of faith and steer them in the direction of the gospel. Praise God, that's amazing. Others like myself may have gifts like teaching or wisdom. Others of you may have gifts like administration or service. God's word promises that every believer has some gift or gifts with which God has empowered us to fulfill our calling, to be the people he's called us to be, ambassadors for him. And yet God also makes it clear what's important is not just the skill, but the training, these gifts are not static, fixed quantities. So the Bible calls us to grow in wisdom, to grow in faith, to grow in mercy. That we can, through God's word and by God's spirit, we can be trained in all of these gifts. We can grow our capacity for them all. And the Bible calls us to pray and earnestly desire all the gifts. The best leaders for Christ do that. Number three, leaders need conviction and courage. Even though Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, Hebrews 11 tells us that he renounced it. He left it behind. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he identified instead with God's people Israel. He forsook his Egyptianness. He forsook his cushy life in the palace with all its pleasures and comforts and willingly chose a life of hardship amongst the slaves instead. Now that takes conviction and courage because he knows that Pharaoh's not going to like that, that his adopted mom's not going to like that. It takes conviction to know right from wrong and courage to choose what's right even if it costs you, even if it costs you everything. In the palace, Moses was no doubt raised to look down on the Israelites, to justify their enslavement. Who knows how long it was before they broke it to him that he's different, that he's one of them. We don't know. But he was raised to hate them. 
And yet, whether it was Moses' conscience, that part in all of us that watches another human being get beaten the way this poor Israelite was in verse 11, the way Tyree Nichols was in the video released on Friday, whether it's our conscience that causes us to say, that's not right, someone stop them, or whether Moses was under some sort of special conviction from God here, perhaps God himself is reaching down from heaven to touch Moses' heart and give him the strength to disavow his Egyptian upbringing and to embrace his Israelite heritage instead. Whatever his motivation, we don't know, this took great conviction and courage for Moses. And tellingly, the word used here in verse 11, Moses went out to his people. It's the same word, Yatsah, that will be used later of Israel's going out from Egypt. It's the word Exodus. So the point is, before Moses could lead God's people out of Egypt, Moses himself had to be led out of Egypt by God. He had to renounce it. Before God could get his people out of Egypt, he had to get Egypt out of Moses. How about us? Perhaps the reason some of us aren't more effective ambassadors for Christ is because we haven't yet truly renounced Egypt. We haven't yet truly renounced the world and all its worldliness that we've supposedly been set free from as followers of Christ. Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, likewise, says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, then he will be an honorable, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If the imagery, metaphors of members and vessels confusing you, perhaps the simplest metaphor of all for this is the one that Jesus himself used in Matthew 5, when Jesus called us to be light and salt. He said, the world is dark and it's decaying rapidly due to sin. But I'm calling you to be light and salt. But Jesus said, if the salt is no longer salty... If the salt loses all its preservative power, then it's useless. If the light isn't any brighter than the darkness, if God's people don't look or think or act or love those in need any different than our lost, unsaved neighbors and co-workers do, then are we really light at all? Brothers and sisters, we need conviction and compassion. We need the conviction to know godliness from worldliness and the courage to choose godliness over worldliness, regardless of the cost. I don't know if you've noticed, but it is becoming increasingly less popular in our country to be a Christian. Every single day, the question for us is, will we stand for Christ, with Christ, when it no longer pays? It used to pay to be a Christian. Oh, she goes to church. She must be a good person. Not anymore. Now it actually costs you something socially to be a Christian. You're a Christian? You must be a misogynist, anti-science, homophobic bigot. Will we have the conviction and the courage to stand 
for Christ even when it's unpopular. Number four, leaders need compassion and righteousness. Like both of his biological and his adopted mothers, Moses was filled with compassion, we hear. Exodus 2 says he looked on his people's burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Philip Ryken explains this verb for watching, yara, it means more than simply to look or to see. It means to see with emotion. It is the kind of watching that demands intense personal involvement with what one is seeing. In a word, it requires compassion. When Moses watched the Hebrews, it was more than an eye-opening experience. It was even more than a consciousness-raising experience. It was a heart-transforming experience. When he saw the misery of his own people as they slaved away for Pharaoh, their burdens became the burdens of Moses' own heart. And friends, this is one of the most crucial marks of a leader, a great leader. And, And every true believer, by the way, Every real Christian is the willingness to assume others' burdens as your own. Galatians 6.2 exhorts us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When it all hits the fan at work and you have to go in and tell your boss, hey, we got a problem, how do, how do most bosses respond? Then fix it. That's what I pay you for. Don't bother me with it. Your problem, not mine. Now, a good boss might say, okay, what do you need to help you fix it? You need more money? You need more staff? Help me help you? But the best boss says, no, your problems are my problems. How can I help fix this? What kind of parent? What kind of parent do you want to be? kind of parent did you want to have when you were in middle school? Did you want the kind of parent who said, seriously, sweetie, you're this upset over that boy with the acne and the braces? Look, life will be filled with heartbreaks. This is not one of them. Get over it. Suck it up. Or the kind of parent who says, you know, I hear you. I see you. I'm with you in your, in your pain parent who assumes your burdens as their own. Compassion. This is compassion. And yet for all of his leadership successes, Moses wasn't perfect, was he? Because equally as important to great leadership as compassion is righteousness. Righteousness. Uprightness in morality. Moses may have had the conviction to know right from wrong, which is how he knew that it was wrong for this Egyptian to be beating this poor Hebrew slave the way he was, but it's also the reason that Moses knew in verse 12, it's also the reason he knew to look this way and that before he killed the Egyptian, because deep down Moses knew, the reason he hit him in the sand, Moses knew murder is wrong. Now, you could try and make the case that Moses didn't sin here, argue even biblically that uh, sometimes you have to take a life in order to save a life. In fact, Stephen almost appears to try and make the case in Acts 7 for Moses when he says he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. But the fact of the matter is, Moses was a man of power. Moses was 
Pharaoh's, whether Pharaoh liked it or not, Moses was Pharaoh's grandson. Moses could have stopped this injustice without resorting to murder. Instead, he abused his power. Why? Well, Stephen tells us, if we read on in Acts 7, it's because he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses said, don't y'all get it? I'm your savior. I'm here to rescue you. But you know why they didn't get it? Because it wasn't true. If that had been the plan, if Moses had been the savior, the great deliverer for Israel, if the plan was for Israel to be saved by Moses' hand, then Moses would have gotten the glory. No, Moses had to learn the hard way here that he was not, in fact, Israel's great deliverer. God was. Moses had to be humbled. That they would not be set free by Moses' greatness and power, by his strength, by all of his training and equipping in Egypt. All that training, the wisdom of Egypt says, just like Jesus says in the New Testament, the Gentile leaders, they, they lord it over. It's power over. That's what Moses learned in Egypt in the palace. God says, not in my kingdom. I'm going to get the glory because I'm going to save my people. Friends, it's not enough to do God's will. We have to do it in God's way. Instead, Moses takes matters into his own hands here, as he will again later in Numbers chapter 20, when once again in anger, Moses suffered from a short fuse. Moses will strike a rock in the wilderness in anger, and that one simple act will cost him his ticket into the promised land. Joshua will get to lead the Israelites in instead. This is how seriously our God takes his calling on our lives to be holy as he is holy, to be righteous. Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness is a matter of first importance for leaders and for followers of Christ. Righteousness. Number five, leaders need wisdom and humility. In wisdom, Moses fled to Midian from Egypt. You say, well, was it wisdom or was it fear? Sometimes there's a fine line between the two, but I think that it was more than fear. I like to think that like the patriarchs Abraham and Jacob before him, like the prophet Elijah and the apostle Paul after him, like Jesus himself in Matthew 4, all these great leaders of scripture who had to Before they could lead for God, lead God's people, they had to be first led out into the wilderness as the place, the crucible, where God would prepare them for the job to which he was calling them. Moses, this man mighty in word and deed, had to be humbled. God had to get the Egypt out of him. He had to learn complete reliance on the Lord, not himself his own wisdom and strength. Before Moses could lead, he first had to learn to follow. This is it. Unfortunately, one of his good traits was Moses was a quick learner because we notice immediately upon his arrival in Midian, very next verse, we can already recognize a change of heart in Moses. God tests him in verse 17. He witnesses yet another injustice a group of shepherds who were bullying, mistreating the priest's daughters, monopolizing this life-giving water at this Midianite well. Don't have time to trace the whole well motif that runs all through Scripture. Rich symbolism there. Just don't have time. But Moses 
must have repented of his murderous anger. We're waiting for Moses to fly off the handle and kill somebody again. But no, a good leader, a true leader, is humble. And the mark of humility is the ability to admit and learn from one's mistakes. And it is absolutely imperative to leadership. And so Moses goes beyond that. Not only is he, is he humble to do things differently in handling the situation with the shepherds, using only enough force to defend the girls, but Moses even goes beyond that. He humbles himself by personally now drawing water for these young women. Watch this. Riken notes, in ancient times it was unthinkable for a man, unthinkable for a man to perform such a menial task for a woman. Moses stooped to serve, and by learning to serve, he was learning to lead. According to Jesus, this kind of servant-hearted humility is the very essence of leadership in God's kingdom. And Jesus said, those who are considered rulers, they're considered rulers, scare quotes, of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, Jesus said, for whoever will be great amongst in my kingdom, great amongst you must be your servant. Whoever be first among you must be the slave of all. And so this is what Moses is learning in the desert, humility. As the great Dwight L. Moody put it, Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. Then he spent 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And later he will spend his last 40 years, after freeing his people and leading them back into the wilderness, Moses will learn that God is everything. He thought he was something, learned, had to learn he was nothing in order to learn that God is everything. And so Riken encourages us, whenever we are tempted to grow impatient with God's timetable for our lives, just remember Moses, who spent two years of preparation for every one year of actual ministry of his life. So I told some of our senior saints in the First service, hey, if you're in your 80s, you'd, maybe you've never truly led for Christ at all. No better time than the present to start. Moses waited till he was 80 to really actually roll up his sleeves, get into minute. God had, took him that long to prepare him. God is still not done with us yet. Praise God. Finally, number six, leaders need both supporters and sheep. Got to have both supporters and sheep. We've already discussed our need for support. For others' help in point number one. So I would just simply point out here that we don't just need others' help when we're helpless babies. We need others' help. Moses still needed the help of Reuel and his daughters, their family, well into his 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. He needed their hospitality, generosity to survive in the harsh desert. We all need one another. And we will see Moses need others throughout his ministry in our study in the chapters to come. But again, think of the implications for your life, friends. So to you and I, we need others. And we need to recognize our neediness and our dependency on one another in every season of life. There's never a time when you don't need God's people, this spiritual family and support. Refusing the support of your family and friends does not make you tough. It just makes you stupid and proud. And God has told us he will humble the proud. So don't be that person. We all need help. 
It's okay. In fact, if you can't admit your need, Jesus has, has nothing for you. He said it's the sick that need the doctor, not the healthy. All you need is need. And lastly, leaders also need sheep. I can't remember who it was who said the best way to tell if you're a leader is to turn around and see if anyone's following. If you're not a shepherd, you're not a shepherd unless you've got sheep following you. And this was true in Moses' case, quite literally. We were going to open the very next chapter next Sunday in chapter 3, verse 1, with Moses tending his father-in-law's sheep. We learned that became his vocation out in the desert for these 40 years. And Riken points out, this was hardly the profession Moses would have chosen for himself. Being raised in Egypt, the Bible says all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians, Genesis 46. But the Bible also shows that many great leaders got their start as shepherds. Think of David, others. There's a lot to be learned from tending sheep, Riken says. For starters, sheep are not very bright, which means they need someone to lead them to food and water. They make an easy target for predators, so they need someone to protect them. They're prone to wander, so they need someone to bring them back to the flock. In short, sheep are completely dependent on shepherds for their care, which is why the Bible so often compares God's people to sheep. Do you realize you're a sheep this morning? Do you realize your need? In the words of the psalmist, Psalm 100, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Like sheep, we need divine guidance, nourishment, protection. It was by tending his flock, therefore, that Moses learned how to feed, defend, and rescue the lost sheep of Israel. But we also hear Moses' sheep weren't limited to his fluffy four-legged followers. God blessed him with sons. A son in verse 22, Gershom. And just as any Christian parent can tell you, if you want to be prepared and well-practiced, for leading others, for leading in God's church, leading others for Christ, just have kids. They will humble you. <laughs> they will prepare you. They will, you will learn more than they do along the way. There's a reason God makes good parenting one of the prerequisites for eldership in his church in 1 Timothy 3. Any elder must manage his own household well, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So much more to be said. But in conclusion, let us remind ourselves, most importantly, what we need more than historical information about Moses, what you and I need even more, even more than personal application to our own lives and leadership this morning, what we need most of all is to see how all 12 of these marks of a great leader point us to Jesus, the greatest leader of all. On our own, you and I will never measure up. We will never be the leaders that God has called us to be. But praise God, our salvation is not contingent on you leading for Christ, being a perfect ambassador for Christ, because you won't be. You'll screw up. Praise God, your salvation is simply a virtue, a result of Christ's sacrificial leadership for you on your behalf. God's favor God called Jesus his beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Others help. Jesus emptied himself, we hear, allowing himself to be cared for by his mother and, and father, by, by even his disciples through his ministry, by even Simon of Cyrene and his death, this stranger helping him carry his cross. Not because Jesus could have called down legions of angels, but he did it as an example to us in humility. Training. As a young boy, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Skill. Just read the Gospels. 
feeding, multiplying loaves and fishes, miraculous, miraculous healings, raising people from the dead. Jesus had game. Full, in him all the fullness of deity dwelled. Conviction and courage. If it took conviction and courage for Moses to leave a life of ease and comfort and power as the son of the king of Pharaoh, how much more so for Jesus to leave his life of pure bliss in, in paradise, to step off his throne in heaven as, as the son of God, to come down and dwell amongst us in a broken world. Compassion, Jesus looked. Jesus didn't, didn't do it just holding his nose. Like, oh, I guess I'll put up with it. Uh, no, the Bible says he, he looked with compassion at us like sheep without a shepherd. It wasn't like, oh man, that stinks. It was, come to me. I'm the good shepherd. Here's the invitation. Come, follow me righteousness. Jesus alone was righteous. It is only by his imputed righteousness that any of us can be made right with God, can be reconciled to a perfect God. Wisdom, the Bible says Jesus was, is the wisdom of God. Wisdom incarnate, humility. Though he was all those things, though Jesus was God in the flesh, Jesus, we hear, did not consider his godliness something to be exploited, but rather he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That's the kind of leader Jesus is for you. Supporters, Jesus didn't need a family, but he desired one, and he died to make us one. But in order to join the family, friends, you must become a sheep. You must become a sheep and follow him as your good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he alone is worth following. He is worth your heart, mind, soul, strength, your life. He's worth it all. Have you given it to him? Have you surrendered to Jesus this morning? If you haven't, don't wait another moment. Repent and believe and be saved.